0: Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Newberry Court, a full service retirement community in Concord, Massachusetts. Newberry Court is committed to creating active, independent lifestyles for persons 62 and over. More at newberrycourt.org.
1: I'm Jim Browdy. And I'm Marjorie Egan. This is the best of Boston Public Radio, a new daily podcast from GBH featuring our favorite conversations from our three hour radio show in under 40 minutes.
0: Don't panic. If you love filling your phone with episodes of our full show podcast, you can still find it anywhere you get your podcast or just catch us live on 89.7 GPH starting at 11 o'clock.
1: Today on the podcast, Jared Bowen fills in for Marjorie. Mary Grant, president of Massachusetts College of Arts and Design, reflects on the college's 150-year anniversary and how it's adapting to a rapidly changing creative world thanks to AI. And the cultural communal significance of
2: perpetual stew. There's one brewing in Brooklyn right now. Food policy writer Corby Cummer discusses the appeal of constant improvisation and making do with what you have.
1: I think we're talking about me, Jim perpetually stewing browdie. That's correct. Nevertheless, here's the show. President Mary Grant. It's great to see you. How are you?
0: Great, and it's nice to be here with you, Jim. Thanks We're so much. We're thrilled to have you. Delighted. Uh,
2: th- uh, yes, very thrilled to have you here. This is an auspicious moment. It's 150th anniversary of the school, which has had arts at the, its core since the inception. Um, carrying it forward, what's the role of the school today, and, and how do you take stock of that history in, in this moment about making sure the arts are front and center?
0: That's a great question, Jared. And, you know, and one of the things is I appreciate so much all the support and the conversations you've helped lead over the years in this important space. Um, We, you know, 150 years is an incredible history for mass art. And we were founded by the legislature to ensure that people across the Commonwealth were being taught how to draw, how to respond to the innovation needs of the industrial economy. And we're doing that today. And when I think about all of the things that we're doing, this is a moment in time to tell the story, retell the story, because when I stepped into this presidency, which was a tremendous honor, I had so many people saying to me, geez, I didn't know mass art was a public institution. I didn't know you folks who are 150 years old. So to be able to take this moment and elevate it, because the contributions that this institution has made, the work that our students do, the creativity of our alumni, the talent of our faculty and staff, it is a brilliant mission. And so we have, I'm right now we're looking at how, what is innovation like now? And how do we change accordingly? How do what do you we mean, get the, our a, students ready? the
1: AI era? Is yeah, that what you mean?
0: Yeah, AI is a big part of it. And I think, you know, I like to think of it as human-centered AI, because you can't have innovation with Without creativity, and that's what we're teaching students every day: is how to use their creative sensibilities to engage with these technologies. You know, this is really
1: outside the, the parameters of what we intended to discuss with you. But as soon as we, uh, you said what you said and I mentioned AI, uh, Jared almost had a stroke about uh, six <laughs> months ago. When the, where, where, where was that contest for the Colorado, the Colorado State Fair? Yeah, and explain what happened for the listeners who don't know about this. Where
2: somebody used AI, AI technology in the photography competition and won, and didn't hide it though, because he he wanted to prove prove where AI had advanced and that we as a society would reward AI. How do um, you feel about that?
0: Well, you know, I think it's. there's been a lot of conversation around AI, and I think we have to not be afraid of it. I think we have to learn how to embrace it. It's here, and it is one of the biggest. It's not just an enabler. It's a driver of change. So we have to teach our students what this means. And I don't think we can do this well without having the creativity and the human decision making that comes along with it, because it is imperfect. We know that. It can't make judgments. It's learning in some interesting ways. doesn't have an ethical center. And so that's part of what we have to bring to it and it is part of what's going to create more pathways. It will change the way we work, but I think we have an opportunity to harness it, and it's here we can't run from it. We have to engage. With
1: a lot it. of our leaders don't have ethical centers, so that's not an obstacle <laughs> right. to anything. You, you sign, I know you're one of a bunch, of a bunch, a large bunch of uh, a college and university presidents signed a letter about uh, the affirmative action decision from the Supreme Court. What's that going to mean to your place? Yeah.
0: Well, for us, you know, one of the things, Jim, that I like to say and believe in deeply is that as a public institution, access is our responsibility. Yeah. So it isn't changing how we do things. We have been uh, we, we are test optional. We are portfolio based. Uh, We are working deeply with the Boston Public Schools to ensure that the pipeline of access for students who are coming from our neighborhoods is wide open. We have a summer intensive program called Artward Bound that is focused on Boston Public High School students, specifically to look at how uh, upstream, after high school and college, we're diversifying the design and art field. So for us, and I also think in Massachusetts, we have a responsibility as educators to lead on this matter because we can do it from Massachusetts. other parts of the country can't right now. But is
1: it going to reduce, I mean, despite your optimism, is it going to reduce the diversity of an incoming class down the line? You don't think so? I don't,
0: I don't believe so. Not for us. It may impact Because other you have
1: race-neutral uh, uh, things like you described a minute ago with well, the Boston public schools that well, allow you to achieve your goal without upsetting the Supreme Court?
0: Well, also as a public institution, you know, it is access is part of our mission. And so, you know, we from the very, very, very beginning. So for us, this is about building the best class. And uh-huh. we are actively recruiting students from across the Commonwealth.
2: Yeah, I was going to ask more about that, the pipeline. and That was what we heard immediately from, from some university professors, uh, presidents who were very concerned about this decision is that they now have the work to do. Um, maybe thought that they had done some of the work, but realized the onus is so so much more in them. Explain a little bit more what you've done to cultivate that pipeline, and how you can be in how you can ensure that you're having diversity now with the limits imposed from yeah. the Supreme Court.
0: You know, I, public higher ed has a, a unique responsibility to not just be in a community but to be of a community. And so when I think about that, I look at where we're based. We have our home base right in Mission Hill, but we serve the entire Commonwealth. We have a responsibility to be reaching out to schools to ensure that every student in the Commonwealth that has the talent and desire knows that an art and design education is within their reach. So we will continue to do that. I worry about these narratives and the very young people that may think, this means I can't go to school. We have to double down on bringing them to campus. Exposure, college visits, we Right now, this summer, we have youth programs on campus, and these are young kids who are exploring whether or not they want to become an artist. And so that's a pipeline. We're working on raising funds for scholarships to support students to lower the price point for all of our students. So we have more work to do, not so much around the admissions, but around expectations we don't want any young person to feel like this is no longer for them and that's what I worry about
2: for the for, for the arts today what are you preparing students for we have the notion another stereotype or cliche that's the starving artist there aren't jobs in the arts so what's what's the opportunity that you give people uh, knowing that they're entering into a field that that might not be so open to them but obviously there are other arenas other industries that are more than uh eager to have them in their ranks yeah
0: we have um you know first of all, I happen to think, when I when I heard that, like people are like, oh, you're teaching people to paint by the Charles River? It's like, <laughs> yeah. We actually do that, which is an important thing to do. Beauty, culture, creativity. So we never run from that. We embrace that. But when, when I get back to where we began the conversation around creativity, the World Economic Forum 2023 report on jobs said the number one skills employers are looking for and the number one skills that job seekers have to have is creativity. So when I think about that, that is front and center in our mission. We know that Massachusetts in the next decade. There's going to be approximately 600, 650,000 openings over the next decade. Within that, I believe there's about 25,000 that are going to be individuals retiring our new jobs in the creative and cultural sector. Where are those folks going to come from? They're going to come from MassArt. When I think about preparing students, we have architecture, we have design, we have industrial design, we have art education, so a broad range, and we have design thinking within that. We have an artist um workplace incubator space on campus where we're teaching students the skill of being an entrepreneur because forty percent of artists are self employed. So they have to know how to do taxes, how to write grants, how to pay their bills. So it's helping to prepare them broadly. And our alumni are doing everything from serving in state legislators to working as general counsels for major state agencies to designing sneakers to being on Project Runway. They are everywhere, Jared. They really are. What
1: do you know about art and design? It just occurred to me. I mean, <laughs> I know your background, and yeah. it's incredible. But I'm, what's the art and design deal with you, Mary Grant?
0: Well, as a matter of fact, Jim, yesterday, I took a – Saturday, I took a course in wooden carving utensils at MassArt. <laughs> so, I, uh, you know, I'm on my way to becoming a master carver. No, you know, for me, this was a – but that's serious. Did you I'm really, by like, the way? Yeah. That's great. And yeah, I actually, take the next class good. next week, that's so I'll great. be better, you know. Um <laughs> But um, for me, this is about a leadership opportunity, Mm -hmm. and MassArt has a unique place in the public higher ed landscape. Is there any
1: other? No, in the United States,
0: we are the only independent public college of art and design in the country. Why? Because (laughs) Massachusetts put a value on this, and when we were funding, when we were creating public higher ed, there was a decision made: we need a school just like you, to focus on this. So that's why I did it. And also I had an aunt that graduated from Mass Art 70 years ago.
1: Is that really true? Yeah.
0: And you know, she went into art education. So for me, it's kind of like this is a unique, distinct institution at an important time in Massachusetts and the country.
1: I want to talk about an important time. We're talking to President Mary Grant of Mass MassArt. Uh, Andres Nelson is one of my favorite people, the music uh, leader of the BSO. There's never a time that Andres... I mean, he speaks in almost spiritual ways. Uh, I, he may be spiritual in life. I don't know if he is. But one of the things he says better than anybody else is how important art of all kinds is in difficult times. And all we've lived through are difficult times in this world in the last X number of years. If beyond, I assume you subscribe to the same notion. And if you do, you're nodding in agreement. Add to that narrative, if you would.
0: It's, it's so essential. When I think about, we had a wonderful course that was taught by one of our faculty members called Designing Empathy. Mm. And it was having students reflect on their experiences during lockdown and the pandemic. And so a student would draw a portrait, paint something. Another student would reflect on that and say what it meant to them. And then the first student would reflect on what that student had described. Mm. So the ability to heal, the ability to chronicle a time and tell a story from narrative storytelling to the, the portraiture that occurs, it is essential. When we bring communities together, we may be divided, but when we're looking at something and we can talk about, what are you seeing in this painting? Or what do you think the ridges on this piece of ceramics mean? It is healing, and is healing. And there's evidence in the medical sciences about what art does to heal people when they are ill, what it does for mental and emotional health, what it does to bring communities together. It is one of the most powerful tools at our disposal to come together. I would completely concur. Um, and it makes it beautiful too
2: you see these students learning and you're talking about leadership I wonder how much leadership comes from them they're the the youngest kids who are out there understanding already probably much more than we can the relevance of AI uh, I know that you have video game designing a uh, video game designing program something they were raised on how much are they leading what's happening at the school
0: we are learning so much from these students I really believe the students who are coming through our colleges right now are that we're on the cusp of the next greatest generation and we definitely They are pushing us around sustainable fashion design. They are pushing us to make sure that the practices we're employing are using cleaner technologies. They are coming and wanting to be beautiful jewelry makers, but making sure that they're also observing what's happening in the environment. They're making us think about who's around the table, and most importantly, who's missing. And they are generous. They are kind, they are welcoming, and they are just a blast to be around. And art and design students really bring a unique perspective to every conversation. But I I work in the business of hope and creativity. And the students are driving us every day to do better, and they should.
1: How affordable are you?
0: We are very affordable. Jim. How so? So, um, if you're a Massachusetts student and you're attending full time, uh, tuition and fees are fourteen thousand dollars a year. Now, you compare that to some other private institutions in the art and design arena, where the tuitions are up at fifty-nine thousand mm-hmm. dollars a year. And I would say, you know, are those schools really fifty-five, you know, forty-five thousand dollars a year better than MassArt? And the answer to that is no. So we we are very affordable. We have worked really hard in the last few years to do private fundraising for scholarships to work on advocacy, to increase student financial aid, and to work with our students so that they're lowering the debt ratio as they graduate. And so we have some of the lowest debt of ours across the Commonwealth. Even
1: beyond that, didn't I read somewhere that there is a, we've talked to Mayor Wu about our community college deal, but isn't there an offshoot of that that affects some of your students? What's that?
0: We have a partnership with the City of Boston, and so there are six community colleges involved in this partnership, where students, if they do their first two years at, at Bunker Hill, at Mass Bay, Massasoit. Um, they can come to mass art in the appropriate degree program and the city will cover the next two years oh, really? at their cost. So that is a That's huge fabulous. benefit. Um, we've got are a, people making use of that. We have well, right now we have a cohort of four students mm-hmm. uh, in a range of disciplines, including architecture and the students are just they're real they really know that they're in the mm-hmm. right place. And they're just so awesome to be around. So that's another way we're working on affordability. What are the partnerships we have to have in place?
2: Where are we in this country with this divide happening because of student loan debt? And how do you think it should move forward?
0: Well, public higher ed, that's the space I'm in. We have to work really hard with the legislatures in Massachusetts across the country to ensure affordability. We have to make sure we're we're removing barriers to degree completion so students can get through on time. But I also think that we have to work on the messaging because across the country, Massachusetts in particular, there's a wide range of affordable, excellent options. And sometimes students hear, it's too expensive. I can't go, I can't afford it. And I worry, Jared, that those are the very students who need to be coming to college. They're the ones that, you know, college, a good college education of refining their skills is going to set them on a pathway for success. And if those kids are getting the wrong messages or adults who are returning to the workforce, they're not going to attend and they need to be attending. So we have a lot of work to change the narrative. We have a lot of work to keep it affordable. We have a lot of work to make sure students don't get into the wrong programs. And
2: when you say messaging, is that because they're thinking that they have to go to X name private school or else they won't have the education? They're not considering other options available to them?
0: When we, I spent um, several years in North Carolina and North Carolina is system. You know, almost everybody in the state has graduated from one of those campuses. So there's this enormous sense of pride in the state. Massachusetts, we're surrounded by an incredible array of excellent private and independent schools. So we have a mixed basket. And what we have to do, my again, my bias is keep elevating the excellence of public higher education in Massachusetts. From the community colleges to the nine state universities to the UMass system, there is some place for everybody. And they are relatively affordable, rigorous education.
1: But uh, but most of the K-12 through systems, I'm assuming at least the urban systems that should be feeders, I mean, you mentioned your relationship with the Boston Public Schools, are not even providing a decent set of opportunities around arts and culture, are they?
0: Different schools, you know, have different programs. So we look at some of the schools where they still have strong arts programs. So we're seeing a lot of students coming from there. So one of the things we've been in conversation with the new superintendent, Mary Skipper, about how can we help out more in the Boston public schools? Mm -hmm. We have art educators across the Commonwealth. I just met with a few of them last week, and they are doing deep work in different school systems and then making summer programs available. So we need to, where we can help re strengthen and rebuild some of these programs is very important. Because these this is a liberating education and it has to be available to students.
1: I still don't understand this one nobody else thing. I just don't get it. I mean I I, I get what you're yeah. saying about legislators historically here valuing this, but I and I'm not suggesting that all of a sudden there's gonna be an epiphany in forty nine other states. I don't understand why no other place has decided there's value Here? What's the real answer to that question?
0: Well, you know, so other states, just to be clear, there might be an art and design college within a larger university. Uh Our mission is to just do this, to double down, to focus on this and to be really good. And that's what we are. I mean, we're really good at this and have been for 150 years. And I think it speaks to Massachusetts' investment in public higher ed and educating citizens of the Commonwealth. Are we perfect? No. Are we always trying? Yes. And I think this is a beacon. And as I like to say, we are indeed the gem and the crown of public higher education in Massachusetts. And so to have this is so unique, and it deserves the support investment that it gets.
1: You probably can't answer this honestly, so it's stupid to even ask. So I, I love when people introduce question like that. Does the legislature give a damn about this, or do they uh, They don't? They really don't, do they?
0: No, you know what? Um, I think that they do, and what we have to do... That's not
1: much of an answer, but <laughs> let I, me just tell you right now.
0: Well, I, you know, every legislator that I've had the chance to talk to about MassHeart in my time there has been intrigued by what we've done. Mm-hmm. They have come to the campus. We hosted the Committee on Arts, Culture, and Tourism. Mm-hmm. Um, and coming back after COVID, where nobody was going anywhere to reintroduce them to the school. There's a whole lot of new legislators too. Um, I've sent out material and every, honestly, Jim, every legislator that I've had contact with has said, I want to come and visit. I want to see what you're doing. And then we have um, one of our favorite alums is Mary Keefe, who's the state rep from Worcester. So we have a wonderful rep right in the building and some other staff members um, who are working on Senate and, and House committees. So we're, we need to get them to care. I'll put it that way. And we've seen a lot of support coming from the building.
2: How about the governor? I have my impressions from when, when she was on Open Studio. Oh, and, you were
1: asked. I remember that. It was a great
2: interview. Yeah, we had it. Yeah. I had her on the record about her take on the arts. What, what do you see coming from her, her governorship so early on?
0: Well, you know, I've been very encouraged because Governor Healy has talked about establishing a creative advisory council. When I was sworn in as president, she came. She spoke. Um, she has been looking at how to put an artist at creative conversations at policymaking tables. I think that she understands that part of the fabric of Massachusetts is the creative sector. And in Massachusetts, the creative sector brings more to the economy than construction and retail combined.
1: Why did she come? She was attorney general when you were sworn in, right? No, she was uh, was governor, She was governor. governor. It was just this past January. Oh, okay. Okay.
0: So she came and it was just wonderful. And it was really an important message to the campus to have Governor Healy there. And I was very grateful. And we had the new secretary of education there and our new commissioner of higher education. So it was a really powerful day for MassArt. So I'm very excited about working with this governor, and I believe that um, she will continue to support this creative sector.
1: So Mary, if if people want to find out more about MassArt, where do they uh, go to find out? Mm
0: MassArt.edu. And please come. I mean, we have, as Jared mentioned, we have our MassArt Art Art Museum, which is free and open to the public. We have our gallery at SOA, which is part of the First Friday happenings every month. Um, We have lectures, we have concerts, we have art openings. We are your public's College of Art and Design. Come and be a part of it. It's a
1: wonderful. Place. You don't need to hear this from me. You are one hell of a spokesperson for your operation. I should say oh, you really are. It's a
0: spectacular place. Well, I
1: know you believe it.
0: And now I'm going to be a master spoon maker too. <laughs> so, yeah, so.
1: I would like to be a master spoon yeah. maker. Actually, it, yeah.
0: it was really great to take a class yeah. with one of my faculty members on Saturday That's great, and six other students. And um, I didn't even, you know, lose any fingers in the in the Love making it. process.
1: It's great yeah. to have you. We'll have Thank you back you. again. Thanks. Thank so much you so for your time. much. Hello there, uh, Corby Kummer.
3: Hello there, Jim. Hello there, Jared.
1: Hey there. Hi, Corby.
2: So I just teased into your segment by saying there are people who have been stewing for a long time. They're presiding over this perpetual stew, a stew that never ends. What's, What's happening and how does that happen?
3: Well, you know, first of all, it's an enchanting story and it's also a kind of only in Brooklyn story. In this case, the gentrifying neighborhood of Bushwick, Brooklyn in which a a, a young woman, 23, Annie Rawurda, started cooking a vegan stew in a slow cooker on June 7th. And with her boyfriend, David Shane, 27, and a close friend, Hagen U, 23, every night they've been going with neighborhood folks who come and line up and bring vegetables, they drop into the stew, And it became so popular on the Internet. And so many people were lining up for this the night stew that they had to start resorting to little tiny sample cups instead of bowls after this communal meal. You know, I think the first question a lot of listeners would ask every night is, are they bringing this up to boiling temperature acid? Is this going to be safe to eat if it goes day after day? And the answer is Yes, they are. But it's taken off. It's a phenomenon. It's building community, people coming in with different ingredients, getting together and meeting each other in the neighborhood.
1: I think it's fabulous. And by the way, this one's been going on for 40 some days, I guess. But apparently there is uh, reportedly in Thailand, according to this New York Times story, a restaurant that for, (laughs) for nearly five decades has been doing this. And, you know, I find that you mentioned the temperature point. I find that totally credible. I mean, if you know what you're doing and you keep the temperature up, you probably can keep something going in a certain environment forever, right?
3: Yeah, there's something so appealing about the idea of keeping something going. Like the starter that's supposed to have gone back to the Alaska days or the Gold Rush in California days. Um, A friend named Tamar Adler wrote a book called The Everlasting Meal. And in that case, it was the concept of You know, say you start with a roast chicken and roasted vegetables on Sunday. You keep that going the entire week. Different beans, different ingredients, different things for your own family. But this has been part of the community. So August 2014, a chef named David Santos started his own perpetual stew in a restaurant that then closed. But there's something so appealing about the idea of constant improvisation and making do with what you have. That's part of what you learn from this idea.
1: By the way, this is not constant uh, 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 improvisation. Wasn't there a Twinkie or something – in the middle of the newsroom, like, for oh, 10 years? Oh, yes. What yeah. was that? It was a Twinkie, yeah. And it was wrapped, and it wasn't moldy or anything? I know it's a, Nothing not exact-
2: ever happened to it. And yeah. it wasn't
1: moldy or anything, nope. right? Did anybody ever eat that thing or no? You don't know. It just disappeared one day. Okay, fine. We're talking but to...
3: If you liked Peeps, you would understand that they similarly have a You know
1: what? I don't like Peeps, so I wouldn't know what you're talking about, Corby. Corby is a big Peeps fan. If you haven't listened during Easter <laughs> season, it's disgraceful. We're talking to Corby Cummer.
2: Well, let's move from um, the-, the perpetual stew to poor pork and what we're learning about some of the, the pork in this country and, and where it's coming from other countries, some of the, the, the drugs that are pumped into it, the muscle-building drugs popular in people, and apparently some farmers are relying on it for their animals.
3: No, it's really good reporting from Tim Carman of the Washington Post. Uh, and it all came from P- from PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, which discovered a report that Mexico was saying that U.S. meat that came from a Smithfield plant contained a drug called clenbuterol. Um, I'm not, yeah, clenbuterol.
1: So, yeah.
3: Which is a um, an anabolic drug that helps you build muscle and lose weight. Build muscle is a really good thing for animals and. There's been a a big movement to ban ractopamine, which is another just for animals, just for muscle building, pack on muscle and fat really quickly. Um, And and that's been outlawed. Why? Because China forbade imports of meats that have been given ractopamine and the U.S. pork industry was using it all the time. Now there are these new reports of clenbuterol, which is what human athletes and um, actors and actresses who need to drop 15 pounds for a part have been taken. I think it's off label use for it in the first place it's not authorized for animals Smithfield and also um, Smith Swift pork have both been caught out uh, exporting pork that has trace amounts of this drug in it they say it's not in our plants there's a possibility that they bought pigs that had been show animals in fairs, and they could have been given these drugs to increase their appearance and their prize-winning potential. It's a mystery, but the things to think about in the long-term are, in the animal raising industry, widespread drug administration, antibiotics are the most notorious to reduce infection, which comes from these inhumane, confined animal uh, treatment facilities. They are full of, they're causing antibiotic resistance across the country. And ractopamine, and now there's clenbuterol, they're muscle building drugs that aren't good for humans, but they get into human digestive systems when they're given to animals.
1: So, how worried should one be about this? Is this, I mean, is this a widespread thing or is it an outlier? I'm not saying it's insignificant if it's an outlier, but is this something that pork eaters should be anxious about?
3: They probably should have been more anxious about Rectopamine because it was widely used in the industry. And if it was stopped, it wasn't because of U.S. laws. It was because of China importing laws. Uh, I think this is probably an outlier for now. But what it shows is that even spot checks, because these companies showed – the uh, result of USDA and FDA samples that didn't have any of this drug in it. So they're saying, they're shrugging and saying, we don't know how it got in. But the fact is that Mexican authorities did find it. They're not disputing the U.S. companies that have shown up in these Mexican samples. They just don't know how it got in. So that's what we should be more concerned about, that with voluntary compliance and occasional spot checks, these kinds of drugs can slip through the cracks. The The lesson is always try to go for small farms that aren't raising their animals in confined, difficult, disease-promoting conditions in the first place.
1: So what am I holding in my right hand? Can you see what it is? Can you see? I'm holding it. looks this.
3: like cheese curds. No, it is not. <laughs> it's Twinkie.
1: It is the Twinkie. I can't read the note that goes with it, so if someone can type on the comment. Of course, it's
3: been faded by the sun.
2: But
1: this is the Twinkie, is it that not is that the was Twinkie, in the newsroom for... A l-
2: I recognize it because the ink faded on the
1: the, the Twinkie wrapper before but the But how Twinkie can there be no mold faded. or anything on the damn tw- I don't, Do not you really want to know the not answer even to food. that question? Okay, yeah. fine. So uh, I read a story, and Marjorie should be here for this, because all things climate concern her, as they should all of us. There's a story in the New York Times, the title of which is Starving Orcas and the Fate of Alaska's Disappearing King Salmon. So on one hand, uh, first of all, uh, the King Salmon, uh, which I guess are called Chinook, which yes. is uh, different from what's the other kind of from a uh, uh, sockeye uh, salmon, which I occasionally buy the uh, they're smaller and that's a climate change, uh, a thing, but some are arguing you shouldn't eat them because they're disappearing because of climate others are arguing. You shouldn't eat them because orcas are disappearing and orcas are the, that one of the primary things they like eating are these, Uh, these, uh, what do you call them, these uh, king salmon. But the takeaway from me, unless I mischaracterize one of those facts or what I believe to be facts, is the king salmon's about to disappear, either because it's eaten too much by humans, or if humans don't eat it, orcas are going to eat it all, and then it's going to be gone. Is that an incorrect assumption to make from this No, that's
3: correct. This starts out of the New York Times as a very uh, kind of cute animal animal, Um, A charismatic animal story about killer sharks, but we all love uh, beloved and endangered orca whales, which want 12 to 15 giant king salmon a day um, to fatten up and to eat. And so there are lawsuits saying let's close down the entire king salmon fishing industry because there are very few. There's 73 of these orcas uh, around Seattle and the Puget Sound but we're going to take away their food source if we allow king salmon fishing. But then you find out later in the story, as you read, Jim, the king salmon uh, populations are dropping like by 60% since 2005 or something horrifying. And so shutting down fishing might not be the answer because oceans are warming up and king salmon are disappearing and there's no particularly good explanation about why they're disappearing, but shutting it down might not be all that great for saving the orcas and who knows what it's going to do for the king salmon population what i took away from this story is we shouldn't be catching and eating king salmon period so they're very they're going to be an increasingly endangered species why are they called king salmon they're bigger they put on more fat their meat comes at a a very high premium often 30 to 60 dollars a pound um, I find them much lower on flavor. But now I'm not going to do taste tests with so, King Salmon anymore.
1: Let me ask you, you know, I probably eat, I'm trying to think as you were speaking, I probably eat more salmon than any other protein source, I think. I eat a huge amount of salmon. If I ever had King Salmon? I, I don't know if I've ever...
3: Sure, you would remember from how expensive it is.
1: Oh, it it is, generally okay.
3: appears in uh, Boston stores, say, only in August to October. That's the general time that it's available. Very little salmon is wild caught. Uh, 97% of the salmon you buy, Jim, is farmed. It's Atlantic salmon. Uh, There's very little wild salmon that's available. But now it makes me very leery about wild salmon at all.
2: But let's move now to Taco Tuesday. So, what does Taco Tuesday have in common with aspirin and escalator and Kleenex? That they're just common refrains that didn't necessarily start as this, but uh, start as such. But uh, Taco John has just lost their ability to be the sole, what I guess, legal owner of the phrase Taco Tuesday.
3: Did you include Xerox in that
2: list?
1: Well, Xerox include, should be on yeah. that list. You're totally right. So, I say Xerox.
3: These are. Um, company names that were proprietary and then became so successful, they were, they were interchangeable uh, with the other name. And so in this case, uh, Taco John's uh, created Taco Tuesdays in the 70s, I think, in the 1970s. And they had the rights to call it Taco Tuesday to increase midweek sluggish sales. And Taco Bell and others started to use it. And for a while, Taco John's was winning its cases. And now they're giving up. They just everybody can have Taco Tuesdays.
1: Well, you know, speaking of Taco Tuesdays, I am told one of your favorite movies is the 2014 Lego movie. And in that 2014 Lego movie, the evil leader uses Taco Tuesday. (laughs) I've done this as a distraction to implement his draconian control tactics. Here he is. Hi, I'm President Business, President of the Octan Corporation and the world. Let's take extra care to follow the instructions or you'll be put to sleep. And don't forget, Taco Tuesday is coming next week. That's the day every rule-following citizen gets a free taco and my love. Who wants a taco? Who is that, by the way? That voice sounds like Will Ferrell. Oh, Will Ferrell. That is exactly who it is. So that's the uh, Taco uh, Tuesday history, which is really totally uninteresting. Now, uh, Corby, before you go, Patrick Mendoza. Uh, is the guy who uh, owns – well, I don't know if he still owns or if they've transferred ownership – owns a restaurant in the North End. That's not why he's famous except for a limited number of people. He's famous because he's the guy who they just captured, I think, in Falmouth the other day for allegedly shooting twice at a person in the North End he doesn't like. And uh, at least one of the bullets, both the bullets, went through the window of Modern Pastry. I don't think anybody got hurt, but whatever. And and the question I wanted to ask you about this – is I, I don't know how, maybe there's not enough, there aren't enough, exa- North End's one, of, I, I haven't been there much and I've gone more recently than I have ever. I don't know why. Uh, uh, um, does something like this, particularly since such a huge percentage of people go to the North End are tourists, does a thing like this trickle down to the detriment of the whole restaurant community there? Or is this just seen, maybe it's a ridiculous question, I don't even know. Is it just seen as an outlier thing and an outlier person Do you know what i'm trying to say here
3: well who knows there's a lot of interesting facets of this story and one is that um boston is very particular about managers of liquor licenses the official yes. holder of a liquor license can't yep. be convicted of a crime or have any kind of serious criminal record so um patrick mendoza and his family which have owned this uh Monica's for a long time are trying to transfer it to a woman named McQueen, Amanda McQueen, who's been uh, the manager of record for at least five years and maybe six Mm -hmm. and doesn't have any crimes on her record, as opposed to the official license holder who is accused of having fired two bullets in the middle of a street, and Modern Pastry is very, very serious collateral damage in my book. We are able to make light of it because it went through a window and it didn't kill this guy, but it was a it was a feud between Patrick Windows and a guy named Giovanello who lived uh, mm. above um, the shop above Modern Pastry. I don't know that it's going to redound. If anything, it could land a kind of. Um, A gruesome fascination, like the New York Little Italy restaurant where a mobster was gunned down, and you know that restaurant actually.
1: Umberto's, right? Isn't that what it is? Umberto's, right? I used to go there all the time when I lived in New York. Go ahead,
3: linguine with white clam sauce. Was it? Was it? Wasn't John Connor? Who was it? No. Uh, can but someone looked it
1: up? Who is the mobster? Are you allowed to say mobster? I think you are. Who is the mobster who was killed in uh, in Umberto's in uh, Little Italy in New York City? I can't remember. You know, but one it, of the it, biggest. He was huge, so it to was,
3: speak. It, it can be kind of uh, amusing and fascinating if it isn't anybody you're related to, <laughs> or you know, or, or something that's actually harming your neighborhood.
1: My suspicion. Oh, Joe Gallo is who it was. Joe Gallo. I didn't it's, figure that out. Aiden looked it up.
3: I don't think it's going to reduce business in the North End. And also, the North End, and I hope that your listeners could correct me on this, has become so much of the province of tourists. There's a small and very loyal, but very small and aged uh, Italian American population. But most Italian Americans long ago went to Everett and many other suburbs, usually in the North, you know, Winchester. They're very important communities. So I don't know how much. It's going to affect the local community because I think it is mostly tourists who patronize us. Well, let me
1: just say though is from my recent experiences in the North End, which are more than yeah. I'd had in the past, there is a th- it's almost like a movie. You go into almost any store or any restaurant, and there's like a cadre of locals who are so incredibly interesting and photogenic. And what's the, uh, the sound version of photogenic? audiogenic what do you what do you say i i, I it's a it's I, I feel bad that i spent so many years here and spent little such little time there it's it's spectacular well, and i can share what let, let's just I, I, let's, what let's just
3: remember that in italy every cafe is full of retirees and they retire pretty young in italy they're mid-60s and they park there for the entire it's exactly day. right
1: this is a and small like- version you're totally right
3: it's a running narrative of the whole day yeah. and the whole neighborhood. So that's a part of another culture, which your reporting still continues in the north end of today. And I wouldn't I, call and it and my I, reporting, well, I can because, add to this because I'm not add? too
2: far away. And in fact, I had been in Modern Pastry the day before. That, that you didn't say that really was
3: fired. Yeah, wow.
2: I, I, I go there often for treats because that's they're got so. Taste, yeah, oh my Modern is fabulous, and the people there are so lovely. Just as Jim said, I love to talk to them. They're so friendly, even though you know many days are just inundated with tourists. Uh, but just passing by there the other night, I mean, was just throngs of people passing through the North End. So I don't think it has done anything to dent oh, the tourism there. You know,
1: one last thing, since uh, you're uh, in your other career, you're obviously a great criminal justice expert, Corby. <laughs> I think we raised this the other day. I can't remember with whom. Maybe it was Andrew Cabral. In a prior incident that's been reported in all these stories, the Great Globe reporting on this, one of either uh patrick mendoza his brother one of them so i'm not clear which hit the same guy who he shot at over the head with a bottle and he gets probation could you explain to me as a criminal justice expert as i said when you walk over to somebody and hit him or her over the head with a bottle don't you think that should be a jailable offense what's your sense of that corby
3: was he bleeding? You know, that's just facetious. But the main question here is: I think that Patrick Mendoza, the guy who fired the gun, he was the license holder of record, and that's why this is. And he was on the lam when Boston. I love that was,
1: expression on the lamb, for, yeah.
3: for, for for hearings. And he was found in He didn't even show up. And so how you trans? And the family couldn't get in touch with them to try to transfer the title to the longtime manager who doesn't have a criminal record. Um, I actually applaud Boston for being careful about who gets liquor licenses.
1: Good. He's you forgot not the rest of that the question, story, by the what's way. What's
2: that? You forgot the rest of the story. What is so it? There was the part of the bottle, and then the brother allegedly grabbed a side mirror oh, and hit him over the car head and hit him over the head with that. Yeah,
1: okay. All right. Well, that's a different kind of thing. Uh, Corby, it's good to uh, see you. Thank you for answering all our questions. We really appreciate it. All Thank of you. them. All of them
0: thanks for listening to the best of boston public radio podcast from gbh our crew is zoe matthews aiden conley nicole garcia hannah loss our engineer is john the claw parker our executive producer is jimmy bologna you want to hear the full show download our full show podcast or tune in to 89.7 gbh 11 to 2 each weekday
1: today's episode was produced by zoe matthews